Good morning again, everybody. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, we touched on this passage last week, and we just kind of paused, and we were going to come back and circle back and work on it a little bit more this week. So I want to read this text with you uh, one more time, uh, give you a little insight on where we were last week. If you're a visitor with us, if you're a guest with us, if you're um, down at Cove campus or watching online, I'd love to just kind of start a little bit where we were um, last week, get a running start into the passage this morning. So let's look at it. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 16. It says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So last week, we, we looked at this passage and we, we settled on this aspect of Jesus saying, I will build my church. And, and what does it mean to be the church? And what is this thing that, that Jesus is doing? And out of all places, uh, Matthew wanted us to make sure that we knew it was Caesarea Philippi, where this confession of Christ's identity and supremacy was, was made known. This, this place we are in Matthew's gospel, it, it really is the centerpiece of what Matthew wants us to see and what Matthew wants us to hear. So much has been leading up to this moment. So Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. It was a, a very modern city, uh, just on the fringe of Israel. And it was very diverse in its religious expression, too. There were Syrian gods' temples there, Greek god temples, a, a temple to Caesar, right? It was, it was incredibly mixed. And so it was in a mixed environment just like that where Jesus is saying, who do the people say that I am? And they, they answered and gave him some opinions. None of them were correct. And then Jesus turned to the disciples and said, who do you say that I am? And that's where we pick up today. Peter says, you are, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And from that moment, you just get this sense like, I just think Jesus has to be excited about what he's hearing. You know, he, he, he says something to Peter about his name. And then he says, I will build my church. And so we realize from this point forward, the central activity of God in the world is church building, to build his church. And last week we talked about how the church is not just a group of individuals that are saved and then make some commitment later on in their life to be part of a church or not to be part of a church, but Christians are people who have been saved into a group of people, into the family of God. And so you are the church, you become part of the church. And that's why being involved in a church is so important to who we are, to our identity and to what Jesus is building. We talked about the difference between the universal church and the local church, that the universal church is this worldwide global movement of Jesus where he is seeing people confess him as Lord and Savior in every nation, every people, tribe, and tongue, right? It's this glorious, fantastic thing that's, that's happening, happening all over the world. And then you get to the local church and why the local church is so important because it makes that universal, invisible church visible. It, it makes the gospel tangible. And Jesus is always talking about things within the scripture, about what you believe, kind of working its way out in application. In other words, you, you can't say that you love God and not love your neighbor. These two things are connected. You actually show us how you love God by the way that you love your neighbor. Jesus was always pushing those kind of realities those things that were invisible, those beliefs kind of threw us into our, through our hearts and, and outward. And so the local church is this important expression of forgiveness, of grace, of who Jesus is, that we make a commitment to it. It's, it's part of our lives. It's, so we gather. We don't forsake the gathering. We can need to gather to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And, and Jesus hasn't necessarily freed us from being part of a church because we are the church. So this is what we do. And when we do it, we, we put Jesus on display in an important way. So that was last week and the importance of the local church. And I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. But as you realize your life now fits alongside one another, almost as living stones, right? Jesus is building something here. 
And this is what we get excited about when we realize that Jesus is talking about incredibly deep things, layered things within this passage. So I want to turn your attention to Peter in this moment where Peter gets a name change. Name changes were something that you see in Scripture. Uh, this isn't the only place where somebody gets a new name. In the Old Testament, you see Abram getting the name Abraham. First, he's exalted father, Abram, and then God changes his name to Abraham, father of nations. There's another name change between Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. Jacob has a, a there's a lot of meanings to his name. Jacob was a, kind of a twin with uh, Esau, the, this younger brother who came out holding Esau's heel. And so sometimes he's called the heel catcher. The surplanter is what Jacob means. The deceiver, and his, his life was not always on the, you know, the honest side of things. So it kind of played out that way. And then he wrestles with God. He has this moment, this encounter with God, and from this moment, this wrestling match, Jacob's name changes to Israel, which means God will prevail. With you, God will prevail. That's a good name. That's a good name change. You get Saul in the New Testament, who is persecuting the church. He's rounding up Christians, throwing them in prison. He's present at the first martyr where Stephen is killed for his faith, and Saul has this incredible encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, and Jesus changes his name. You're now Paul, and you're going to be a, an apostle to the Gentiles. And, and he, he did that. You know, it, it, it just changed his life. So here we have Peter. Peter, Jesus says, Jesus says, who does the world, who do, you, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he goes, yes. And you are now Petros, the rock, rocky. That, that's your name. And Peter has been in the spotlight within this context ever since for, for centuries. And there's really two major positions of what do we do with this new name change? What's happening in this moment with Peter, who is now rock or rocky? So when Jesus called Simon this new name, Petros, and then he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And, and by it, Jesus is establishing, one view is Jesus is establishing Peter now as the leader of the church. And with Peter, the leader of the church, there is this now succession of leadership that then comes from Peter. And this view is held by Roman Catholics. And they would say this is one of the scriptures that highlight Peter's position and identifies Peter as the first pope and establishes the Catholic church as the true church. So it's important, like, what's been said about this verse and how you understand it and, and what Jesus is trying to show us through this passage. So that's one major position, right, that Peter is the first pope, and it's on Peter, the person of Peter, that the church is going to be built and then moved forward. The other dominant view is that when Jesus called Simon Petros and then said, upon this rock, I will build my church, Jesus is highlighting Peter's confession, it's the revealed identity and supremacy of Jesus, this confession that is this rock, that the true identity of Jesus is what the church is built upon, right? right? Martin Luther would be in this camp. Martin Luther would say something like this, that there is no church or congregation except where this rock is, which is the confession of Christ given by Peter. So those are the two views, the person of Peter or the confession of Peter. Right? What is this rock that Jesus is going to build upon? So I just want to explore that with you for a minute. Like, how, how do we understand what this is and how do we get closer to what Jesus wants us to understand? One idea would be to look at church history. Like, well, what, what has the church thought about this over the generations? How do we understand the different views, the different interpretations? And I found just one study that I thought was interesting. Um, and it, I think it, it does a it does a good job of, of showing us that this is not an easily solved issue when you look back through the church. A French historian named Jean de Lanneau from the 1600s looked back at what all the church fathers had previously said, and he had about 84 different citations, different church fathers. That's Jerome, uh, St. Augustine, uh, that's, that's, that's Clement of Alexandria, that's Origen, Ambrose, like all these guys, if you're familiar with them, some of these guys from oh, dating over the years. And what he looked at is he saw 16 references to Peter being this rock, that it was on this rock, Peter. 16 references of being this rock as Jesus himself 
that perhaps Jesus is saying upon this rock, right? Maybe he's pointing at himself. There were eight references to this rock being the apostles, that on the apostles, this rock, Jesus would build his church. And 44 references to indicating that this rock was the confession of faith made by Peter. So, I mean, you could read back through church history and see that there's a diverse account. There's counter arguments for all these positions of the various research. And you can examine it even from other angles. And so that's what I want to do. I want to show you, like, let's look at the passage itself a little bit more to see if it helps us. So Jesus had just said previously to Peter that you didn't come up with this confession, this revelation of who I am, that couldn't have come from flesh and blood. In other words, Peter, that didn't come from you. That when you said you were the Christ, the son of the living God, that that was the father working in your life. I think that's important because it's not Peter himself in this moment, right? The confession is something that's coming through Peter. It's gifted to Peter. So the credit of the confession uh, is shared at least between the father and Peter, right? At least that. Jesus could have said, you are Peter and upon you, I will build my church, right? That might've cleared up some of this controversy of like the importance of Peter and the person of Peter. If Jesus had just said, upon this rock, you, you're the rock, upon you, I will build my church. But that's not what he said, right? He used the word Petros. And then when he says, upon this rock, that actually is Petra with an A. And so some have looked at this and determined there's even a difference in interpretation of Petros, which means stone or rock, and Petra, which means bedrock or foundation. And so Jesus could be saying, Peter, you are a stone, you are a rock, you're part of this, but I am building my church on a foundation, on a different kind of bedrock. So I, just looking at this passage, just this passage alone, I would just say we're not getting closer to papal leadership and hierarchy by using Matthew chapter 16. But another angle to look at this would be like, well, what did Peter say, think about himself and his own prominence? Are there ways that Peter walked out this rock-like quality that he got a name from, from Jesus? There is something special about Peter. So what, do we, what can we learn about his own life? Well, the very next section of scripture we're gonna look at next week Peter goes from being called a rock by Jesus to be called Satan. That's a pretty big turnaround. And he's confessing Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he comes right back to him and says something so anti-gospel to what Jesus is trying to do and accomplish that Jesus actually says, get behind me, Satan, calls him Satan. So that we got to balance these things out somehow, go a little farther into Peter's life and Jesus lets him know and Peter does deny him three times. Not just hide his loyalty to Jesus, but deny that he has any loyalty at all to Jesus. Jesus has just been arrested. He's going to the cross and Peter tells someone three different times, I don't know the man. Look a little later into Peter's life, into the church planting work of Paul, and you see in the early church of Galatia, Peter was in the midst of a, right in the middle of a controversy where all of a sudden Jewish Christians were starting to disassociate themselves from Gentile Christians, and Peter seemed to be a, a cause of this, and Paul rebukes him for that. So here you have Peter the rock, and then kind of working out at kind of looks like us. Like there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff happening in Peter's life that doesn't seem to lend itself for this kind of prominence and priority by his own actions. But what I mean, even his own words, if you were to read Peter's letter in 1 Peter, when he addresses the church, he says, one of the apostles, when he could have said chief of the apostles, first of the apostles, he says one of the apostles. And when Peter talks about shepherding the flock, he encourages the church as a another elder, as if he's just another one of the elders of the church. And I think this is important because Peter seems like in his life doesn't necessarily walk out this positional authority, let alone in his letters, he seems to often defer and point to Christ or to others. So which is it, right? Is it, is it the positional Peter? Is it the person of Peter that is this rock? Or is it Peter's confession that is this rock? We're getting closer here. Hopefully you can tell. But I want to give you even a, maybe a, a third answer. That it, if it's Peter or Peter's confession, and I'll offer you, I think it's the, a confessing Peter. Is it Peter 
or Peter's words. And I want to tell you, it's, it's the words, it's the confessing Peter. It's, it's a particular Peter that is the rock. It's a particular Peter. It's a pointing Peter that you're going to see here. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. And the foundational confession is Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. But who says it first? Peter, you can't walk past this. You can't walk past that there's a significance in what Peter's doing in this moment, that actually Jesus changes his name from Simon to Peter. And you realize here, Peter's taking a step forward in this moment, whether he's speaking for himself or he's speaking for all the apostles, it's Peter's voice that announces Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's this moment, right? The church is being built and perhaps Peter's the first stone Perhaps he's just the first member of the church that Jesus is building. I do think Peter's special. It would be hard to to miss how significant he is within the Gospels. He's one of this inner circle of three of the 12. He's sometimes mentioned with James and John as this more intimate group that spent time with Jesus. It's Peter in Acts chapter 2 that after the resurrection, after Jesus ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit falls and the disciples are in Jerusalem and what happens when the Holy Spirit lands upon them is they start speaking other languages and all of these Israelites that have made their pilgrimage from other countries that speak other languages, they all of a sudden start hearing the disciples speak their native language, sharing the gospel, talking about Jesus. It's fantastic. And in this moment, like, what's happening here? How come we can recognize our own language by these common disciples, by these common people? And Peter, it's Peter who gets up and he starts preaching. And he starts quoting the prophet of Joel. He starts quoting King David. He begins to say things like this in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And Peter with such boldness gets up and says this, that 3,000 people come to know Jesus that day. 3,000 people trust Christ as Lord and Savior that day. What an amazing day. Not just that, Acts chapter 10, Peter's preaching again. This time, not in front of a Jewish audience. He stands up in front of a Gentile audience, a a, a larger Greek audience. And in verse 43 of Acts chapter 10, he says, To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then the Holy Spirit, boom, just falls on the audience. This is like, Peter's like, he's right there, like seeing these powerful things happen. But I don't think Matthew chapter 16 is intending to establish the primacy of Peter, but the rock is a particular Peter. It's a pointing Peter. It's a confessing Peter. Peter, you are rocky. And upon you, I will build my church. And upon this rock, these kinds of people that embody the confession, it's not just Peter as a person. And it's not just the confession disembodied. It's, it's, it's faith coming through God's people. It's a belief in who Jesus is that as we preach, as we share, as we live, Jesus said, that's how I'm building my church. I'm building my church in this way. Jesus uses Christ-centered disciples to be the building blocks. I think it's okay to say Peter was the first stone. I think it's okay to recognize that. I have some Catholic friends, Catholic family. Um, they love me deeply. Uh, I love them with all my heart. And they have concerns. You know, they have concerns for me that, that outside the Catholic church, that I'm, I'm kind of separated and missing something that has been established, right, through Peter. But I think what Jesus is offering in this passage is something better than Peter I think it's something better than the Pope. As much as Peter is part of this passage, there's there's more happening here. Like, honestly, the gospel is coming through. Like, there's there's a chance for us to see something that, that Jesus is building something. Jesus is doing something here that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, listen to what he says. What does that mean, gates of hell? So it can be translated gates of hell or gates of Hades. A lot of translations have this as the gates of Hades. Um, and, and the gates of Hades was this 
kind of doorway into the underworld. The gates of Hades is, is where you went when you died. Now, some even suggest that Caesarea Philippi had a place, a kind of a, a, a cave area, a grotto with water that was a, a site of worship. And people believe that this particular area in Caesarea Philippi was a gate to Hades. Like it was a way, kind of a, a way to the underworld. It, it was a way where the, the, when you died, this was kind of where, where, where death was waiting for you. So some have even speculated that Jesus is saying that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it, even the gates of Hades. Like there's a reference point here in Caesarea Philippi that he's looking at. But the point is this, Jesus is establishing his church through his identity and supremacy as the Christ, son of the living God, that not even death can undo. That's what he's saying. The ancient fear, I, I listen, it's, it's still with us. The ancient fear is that when you pass through the gates of Hades, when you pass through the gates of death, there is no return. You can't come back from that. That all of our lives, long or short, end up in this place where we pass through the gates of death and we are no more. There is no coming back from that. There is, there is no return. These gates only allow entry one way. Like that's, the, that's the fear. That's the gates of Hades. Death is always waiting for us. Death is always at the end for all of us, no matter what, until Jesus. Until Jesus. That Jesus' life and death and resurrection were so significant, so powerful, that it broke the gates, that the gates no longer just swing one way, that no longer is death something that you can't return from. Like Jesus is pointing to his own life and resurrection here of what's being established. In fact, Jesus is not only going to go through death, out the other side to life, but he is going to take all of those who trust in him, the church, with him through it. Listen to what Revelation chapter one says. John's having a vision. And in this vision, he sees Jesus. And he references that here in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. That's what Jesus is saying, like how the church is, is going to be built and, and the, the stuff the church is going to be built of, that it's this confession, these Christ-centered confessions of his divinity, kingship, sonship, right? That through that, it, the, the gates of hell will not stand. They won't even prevail against this. That what's happening through the gospel, through the work of Jesus, that even the gates of hell are going to be dismantled. The greatest of all enemies, the greatest of all uncertainties of fear, death, is going to be undone. Oh, death, where is your sting? Is what's going to fall out of the church is going to start talking about death in a far different way because of what we see here. Jesus is going to come from death in such a way that his life will be vindicated as the Son of God, one perfect sacrifice for all sin and also victorious, that he has the power over death. He holds the keys of Hades. That's what the church is going to get to experience. That's the kind of people that Jesus is building, that the gates of Hades will no longer be a place of no return, not with Christ. They will not be able to hold back his victory, his significance. Like, this is good news. Listen, he's, He's saying something so important that our hearts need this morning when we think about death, when we think about the end. And it's not just that, right? It gets even better because Jesus tells Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And this idea of binding and loosing, right? Binding means to forbid or to deny Loose means to permit or, or to give access. Uh, happens a lot when, uh, you know, in the neighborhood that we live in with my kids, the ages that they have been, that it's not uncommon for someone to say a neighbor or friend like, hey, do your, 
Do you mind if you watch our house? We're going on vacation. Could you take care of our dog? Watch the cats, feed the fish, right? Could you, could you do that for us? And what they end up doing is they end up giving us a garage door opener, you know, some keys. It's not our house, but for a period of time, we, we have, we, we're stewarding something or we're taking care of it. And by these keys, we create access or deny access. We, we create an opportunity for people to walk in or to be denied. Uh, young adult ministry had a huge, you know, lake party just, this, just yesterday. The lake house wasn't theirs. Somebody gave them access. Somebody gave them the keys to go into the house and to determine who's invited, who's part of this, Who's not, who's in, who's out, right? This, Jesus is saying something profound that when your life and my life begin to express the kingdom, begin to express this central confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that we carry the keys of the kingdom, that by our message, by the preaching of the word, by, by, the, by the declaration of who Jesus is, by our words and by our life, you create access for people to enter into an experience of heaven of grace, of forgiveness, or by their unbelief to stay within judgment and condemnation. The keys of the kingdom is the preaching of the word in which as we go out and live this way, we create a moment where heaven and earth can connect and people now have access to the kingdom. Your life then becomes an extension of Christ's own prayer where he says, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That there's this blurring of the lines between what's happening in heaven and what's taking place on earth of people being saved. Of people coming to know Jesus in the same way that you know him. Listen to what you have. You get to embody the confession of Christ, who he is. And as you do that, life, death, access, right? Judgment, these things all of a sudden come into play. This is what we get to experience. This is what's happening in this passage. I'll show you another translation of verse 19. And I love what this adds. This is the New American Standard Version. And Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now that's interesting, isn't it? This makes it sound like it's not just you kind of opening and closing doors and giving people access or denying entry, but it sounds like things that have already been established in heaven are now being pushed through your life, that what you do has heaven's support. That's pretty cool. Because the life that these apostles are about to live out as Jesus builds the church is a risky life. There will be moments of discomfort. There will be moments that take courage. There'll be moments when their own lives are in question. And what Jesus is trying to say is, you have the keys. Heaven's got your back. There are things happening in the heavens that are coming through you as you begin to share the gospel and declare who Jesus is and all of his supremacy and divinity. And as people come to know that, they encounter heaven through this confessing body, the church, and the church is built. This is fantastic. It's so good what he's saying here. If we make the passage too much about Peter being the rock, we're going to miss what Jesus is saying. We're going to miss Jesus. I love this because when Peter has our full attention, read his letters, First Peter chapter, in his letter, First Peter, read what Peter begins to say. You know who he says the rock is? Jesus. He says, Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected and now it has become the most important one. And now you, when you come to this particular cornerstone, your lives become living stones. You become part of what Christ is doing. You become part of this church that he is building stone by stone by stone, confessing believer family member of God, you become part of this beautiful expression of what he's doing. And as Jesus is lifted up, isn't that amazing? As Jesus is lifted up as the cornerstone, what happens is he takes us with him. We become part of it. We become part of the church he's building. We become rocks in the church being built, living stones. And we're a group of people that not even death can stop. What would that do for you to leave today 
truly believing death can't stop you. That what Christ has established is so strong, so permanent, so victorious, so powerful, that knowing him as your savior, Christ, son of God, that not even the gates of death will stand. And that he gives you keys. That you become this access point between heaven and earth. As you preach the gospel, share your lives, help one another know Jesus. You become a place where lives change, where people experience blessing. And if there's unbelief, there's where repentance is still needed, right? Like they bump into a God who says, you have to believe this. But you have that stewardship. Jesus would give us keys like that. Trust us with that. Allow us, invite us into that. Paul makes this comment in 1 Corinthians. He says, there's no other foundation laid but Jesus. Watch how you build upon it. So what are you doing? I think this is, the challenge really is for the church this morning is how are you taking care of the way your life builds? What are you building upon? How, is, how are you part of this thing that Jesus is trying to do as he builds the church? Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord for help just as we reflect and take these next few minutes to look at our lives. Lord, as we, as we just close, as we just begin to think how central Jesus you are to this passage, how we see the gospel, that Jesus, that you're building a church, a people with such great security and such great assurance that even death changes for us. Lord, I know we need that message. We need to hear that in our own hearts and believe that as short as life feels at times and as unexpected as things happen, that the church that you are building is no longer bound in the same way. That death is not the end. That Jesus, you're creating a group of people so tethered to you that your life that has overcome death, your life that has come through to even more life is a life that brings us along. And in doing so, you give us these words and confessions, moments to actually help others around, to embody this confession in such a way that other people could experience heaven that have access to grace and forgiveness, to purpose and to hope, to relationships that they never had before. And where is this all going, Lord? I just thank you for the security that we have, that you will build your church, that death will not even be able to hold back this great work, and that in the end, this growth will turn into a celebration of who you are. God, don't let us take our eyes off you, Jesus, and what you've done and what you're doing. Let it be quick on our lips, a confession of who Jesus is as our Lord and Savior, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and build your church through us. May that be part of our prayer this morning, is God, use me. Let me build on this foundation. Use me to be a place where heaven and earth meet, and Jesus is made more known. We pray this in your name. Amen.